You're listening to the Knowledge Archives podcast. Welcome to the Knowledge Archives podcast, where a group of students on a mission to learn from as many different disciplines as possible. I'm your host, Eileen Farnood, and today I have the pleasure to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Murray, a behavioral neuroscientist and an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Guelph. Dr. Murray's research focuses on how learning history influences drug abuse, and she is primarily interested in how developmental factors intersect with such experiences to drive the development of addiction. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to get started on this conversation and get to learn more about your work and psychology as a whole. Um, So just to jump into things, could you give a brief introduction of yourself and explain some of your research interests? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Jennifer Murray. I am an assistant professor at the University of Guelph in Ontario, uh, and I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. So uh, I study addiction, I study substance use disorders, and I use RAP models in order to investigate the behavioral and neural underpinnings of addiction. I got my PhD at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, working with Rick Bevins, and there I studied the behavioral pharmacology of nicotine in rats. So briefly, what I spent five years of my life working on was determining whether and how nicotine can form Pavlovian associations with other stimuli in the environment. So uh, most people, when they think about Pavlov, they think about the bell and the food. And over time, when the dog starts to hear the bell, it'll salivate in anticipation of the food. So most Pavlovian conditioning studies have used these external stimuli like bells or lights, uh, but very, very few have used internal stimuli to come to control behavior. And that's what we did with nicotine along with some other drugs. We inject the rats with nicotine and then give them something appetitive, uh, in this case sugar water, so sucrose, in their environment. And on alternate days, they get injected with saline, so with basically nothing. And they don't get sucrose in their environment on those days. And with repeated pairings, the rats learn to use that internal drug stimulus as a guide to seek out something appetitive in their environment. So this extended uh, the, the learning theory behind what kinds of stimuli can drive behavior. And it also extended drug addiction from thinking about the drug as just the reward or just the outcome. So it also can form associations with the broader environment. And so after completing my PhD there, I spent seven years in postdoctoral training at the University of Cambridge in England. And I worked with Barry Everett. There, I extended my training uh, into trying to sort out which circuits were involved in a transition from casual controlled drug consumption to 
habitual loss of control over drug consumption. And there my focus was mostly on cocaine. So when we do rat models of self-administration, most of the time that involves an intravenous catheter. So we'll do a surgery on the rats and implant a, a small piece of silicone into their jugular vein. And then they, we stitch them up, they recover, and we can attach them to some tubing inside the chamber and they can press a lever and get infused directly with the drug. So they can self-administer the drug. And just like humans, uh, they tend to transition from controlled occasional use to a compulsive habit uh, as uh, training continues, as their experience continues, and under certain circumstances like prolonged access to, to the drug. So my focus there was trying to determine what the neural circuits were that drove that transition from casual drug use to a drug abuse and a substance use disorder. Then after that, um, so I returned to Nebraska for about a year on invitation to be a uh, to be research faculty back at the University of Nebraska in my former lab. And there I worked a little bit on some poly drug use studies in particular, uh, what an appetitive conditioning history with nicotine, the kind of thing that I had worked on in my PhD, how that might alter the abuse liability of methamphetamine. So what we found with that study is that having that appetitive conditioning history with nicotine, where nicotine was paired with something positive in the environment, and then allowing the animals to self-administer methamphetamine, found that the value of methamphetamine for female rats uh, actually increased after that uh, appetitive conditioning history. After that, um, I got my independent position here at the University of Guelph, and now I run my own lab. So mm -hmm. continuing on uh, a couple of those themes. Mm -hmm. And so, like you mentioned, your research focus is primarily on substance abuse disorders. So right now in your lab, what have been some of those research projects that you've been working on? So we have two primary research programs, and both of these are based on really pressing ongoing societal issues. So one being the dramatic rise of uh, vaping in teenagers. So teens are vaping nicotine at uh, ever increasing numbers. It's actually gone up uh, from like maybe 10% of high schoolers to about now 25% of high schoolers are, oh. are vaping nicotine. And that's only been over the last couple of years that it's gone up this high. So, um, and one of the reasons behind that is because in contrast to combustible tobacco, uh, vaping nicotine just heats it and it doesn't have all of those other constituent chemicals of tobacco. So you don't have all of the carcinogens and all of those. So there's this idea that uh, it's safer. And what we're finding as a field is that it's definitely not. So the other 
issue that, that our lab is focused on is the ongoing and even worsening opioid crisis. So this has been going on for a little while now, um, about a decade or so, it's finally reached the, the collective consciousness that this is a, an enormous problem and it's still getting worse. So uh, opioid related deaths are increasing um, in Canada and around the world. And this is largely due to uh, stronger and stronger opioids entering the market. And because of the pandemic, it's becoming even worse because people are isolated and a lot of the safe injection sites are being shut down and people are hesitating even more now to call for medical care or seek out resources uh, because our, our health system is a bit stretched. So the, the pandemic hasn't gotten rid of the opioid crisis that was already there, it's actually made it worse. So the research programs that are built off of these two ideas uh, for the nicotine, what we're finding is that high dose nicotine in adolescents in rats predisposes those rats to take more nicotine when they're adults. So we have a recent paper showing that, that high dose exposure to nicotine during early adolescence causes those animals when they're adults to take nicotine at a dose that they normally wouldn't have taken it. So our control group being uh, saline exposed adolescent rats, and they're allowed to grow up and take nicotine under those conditions they normally wouldn't. But if they had been exposed to that high dose of nicotine in adolescence, when they're adults, they do self-administer that nicotine. And one of my graduate students, Brianna Renda, has recently shown too that that it has a synergistic effect with adolescent stress. So if you, if adolescents are exposed to nicotine and stress, then their likelihood of self-administering nicotine as an adult is even higher than either of those two factors alone. And so she'll be following that up with uh, looking at the, or where the neural circuitry intersects between stress experience and nicotine experience and how that changes the stress response system in adulthood and ways to mitigate the increased likelihood of taking nicotine as an adult after those experiences. Mm -hmm. So for the opioid side uh, of my, my laboratory, people are prescribed opioids to relieve pain. So that is the, the most common way that most of us experience uh, an opioid. It's to relieve pain. And the relief of pain is a positive experience. So not even the, the rewarding or reinforcing side of the drug itself, but the absence of pain is something that's appetitive, it's a good thing. So the line of research that my other graduate student, Alison Andrade is running, is looking at the impact of an appetitive conditioning history. So if we pair morphine with sucrose and then let them self-administer morphine, do they take more morphine or do they value the morphine more than if they had morphine 
unpaired with sucrose. So they've had all the morphine and they've had all the sucrose, but these are now explicitly unpaired. So they're not forming that Pavlovian association like what I described earlier. So the learning history may impact the later value of the, of the opioid, of the morphine. So when rats are injected with morphine and then that's paired with sucrose and uh, as opposed to injected with morphine and that's unpaired with sucrose, after training, we do the surgeries and they're allowed to self-administer morphine. And what Allison has found is that there is a difference. So rats that had that appetitive learning history both take more morphine early on and are also more resistant to extinction. So if we take the morphine away after they've been self-administering it, it takes them longer to reduce the amount of morphine seeking that they're taking. So it increased the value of the drug because the sucrose, that, that good thing, that uh, appetitive component had increased the value of the morphine. Mm -hmm. Wow, these are both super interesting projects. And just as a follow up, I know you mentioned when you were discussing opioids that like one of the key features which made the drug so um, addicting was the fact that it was a great pain reliever. Um, for the users. So I was wondering with regards to nicotine and vaping in adolescents, have you discovered that there's like a particular trait um, which is really attractive that make them want to essentially at least get addicted to this drug or make them want to try it? So when it was just tobacco, it didn't have all the flavors and everything else that, that vaporizers have. But teenagers then, uh, they still used it and still tried it and still smoked. And during that sort of phase of, of nicotine research, it was determined that it's actually a little bit challenging to get rats to self-administer nicotine initially. So there are a lot of other factors involved with nicotine self-administration and with smoking that can't be captured in animal models. And a lot of that is social. And that's the case as well now for teenagers and vaping. So there's a, a social, hey, let's try it. Teenagers are, are known to seek the approval of peers and they love trying new things. It's part of the fun of being a teenager. And the thing that makes the vaping a bit more than what the tobacco used to be is that now you have the novelty of flavors. You can get it in mango flavor, pina colada, blueberry, strawberry. Um, you can try out all of these different things. So there are there are people, and not just teenagers, who vape just for the flavors. They'll vape the nicotine-free versions of these, of these pods. And because the novelty and the flavor, and that, it, that in itself is something reinforcing. So that is also something that our field is working on, and something that's been discussed a lot, is pairing nicotine with something flavorful, like in some of the work that we've done with the sucrose. But um, we, we give rats strawberry milkshake, we can give them banana pellets. So 
we know or we can hypothesize through some of our other research that having that appetitive pairing similar to the morphine and the sucrose driving morphine self-administration in that line of research that we've got going on in my lab that appetitive pairing with um, something flavorful with nicotine will also drive nicotine self-administration and there is a recent paper by Sergei Chernkov showing that that's the case, also working with Rick Bevins at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, um, showing that if you have that appetitive learning history with nicotine paired with something tasty, then it'll increase the value of that nicotine as well. Mm -hmm. There is also um, a very mild pain relief component with nicotine, but nothing like nothing on the order of, of opioids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also, um, like you've mentioned uh, multiple times already, like you've had the chance to mainly experiment on rats for most of your research. So what is that process like and how reliable are the results that you gain from experimentation on rats compared to how that could be applicable to humans? So those are fantastic questions. Uh, so first, uh, to explain the use of animal models, when you study behavior, when you're a behaviorist like I am, there aren't computer models that can simulate behaviors that aren't yet known. So we can't predict what the animals will do under certain situations. And that's why we need the animals to tell us what they do under these certain situations. So once a behavior is very well known and established, it can be modeled. But if you're seeking out the, the reasons behind why a particular behavior may emerge, you can't predict that based on past results because there are no past results. And we have to use animals in order to get this information. Now, how reliable it is, uh, as far as the neural circuitry goes, uh, that is really highly conserved between uh, rodents and humans. They have the same neurotransmitters, they have the same receptors, they have the same connectivity between the same structures, but there are some higher order, uh, particularly cortical areas in humans that aren't there in rats. So we are aware of those differences and um, comparative neuroscience makes, uh, makes sure that we're aware of those differences. And as animal researchers, we take on the responsibility of recognizing what those limitations are, particularly when we start to study uh, higher cognitive uh, decision-making sorts of tasks in rodents. As far as behavioral translation, I think a really good example of that is the phenomenon of renewal. So renewal is a, it's something that's been studied for many, many years. It was observed a long, long time ago. Um, so I mentioned extinction earlier, where you remove the, uh, the reinforcer and the behavior starts to decline. So Early on, learning theorists thought that that meant that that original learning, that original association that caused the behavior was disappearing, that they were losing the memory of that. And what they found was that that's not the case. So 
one of the evidences of that not being the case is renewal. And so in that situation, you form an association between uh, a CS and a US, um, a, a, a light and, uh, and food. And so you have light and food, light and food, all within a particular context. And then if you take the animal and put them in a different context and show them the same light over and over and over again, but you don't give them the food, they'll stop seeking the food. So they'll extinguish that behavior. But then if you return that animal into the original context and show them the light again, then that behavior comes back showing that they still have a memory of that original learning. But that memory, well, not the memory, but the behavior was reliant on the particular context. Now, if we shift over to humans and the human condition, uh, one of the therapies for phobias and for drug addiction is cue exposure therapy. And this, uh, particularly for drug addiction, has not been very effective. So in this therapy, someone with a substance use disorder goes into the clinic, we'll say a smoker, they're exposed to the stimuli associated with smoking. So they sit down in a chair and they will open a pack of cigarettes and they will take out a cigarette and they'll fiddle around with it and they'll play with a lighter and maybe um, a smell will emerge. Um, and, you know, they wouldn't be smoking it, but the therapist might be offering that tobacco sense. And so they are being exposed to these cues to try to reduce the craving for the drug under a controlled, safe situation. And they go in every day for a week and self-report shows that, you know, when they go in, they're craving it pretty badly. And then they're craving it a little bit less after an hour of therapy. And then they go in the next day or the next week and they're craving it less and less and less. But the problem is once they're out back in their original environment, so they go back to that original context, those cues elicit really high levels of craving again, because they're within that other context. And this is one of the challenges too of inpatient uh, drug treatment centers where you're in there for four weeks, for instance, or even detox for a week. You're outside of your normal environments. You aren't taking the drug. You have some cue exposure therapy attempts, but then you go back into your original environment and that behavior and those cravings renew. So that phenomenon of renewal that was first observed in a controlled laboratory setting in rats translates into what's observed in humans. So there is a there is translation across these behavioral phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's super interesting that also sometimes like right now, a lot of people might not recognize like what's the need for animal testing if we have like computer models. So I think that did like you answered a lot of my questions with regards to like, oh, like there actually is still a need for experimentation on rats. Yeah, absolutely. And we are incredibly highly regulated in our use of the animals. And as researchers, 
we highly respect the animals that we do use in our research. So I sit on the animal care committee for the University of Guelph. And so I review animal use protocols. I also have to write my own animal use protocols. My animal use protocol is probably about 70 pages long. I have to justify the science behind it. I have to explain all potential uses or all potential tasks that will put the animal through. I have to justify the, the drugs that I use and the dose ranges that I use. I have to justify um, the procedures that we use. I have to demonstrate in front of, uh, and my students as well, have to demonstrate in front of the vet that we are skilled surgeons before we're allowed to do that on our own. Um, we have um, recovery protocols, and it's not just with rats. I, I've, I've seen and reviewed AUPs for everything from frogs to horses and how they'll be used. And that uh, animal care committee is composed of not just scientists, it's also composed of veterinarians and members of the public. So there's a, a lay summary that we have to write to explain to the public what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the importance of this is. And so if we weren't before, and ideally all of us do, um, frame it in a way that, okay, so what do we need as a society? And what are some steps we can take toward reaching that goal? So in my case, the, the adolescent nicotine consumption and the ongoing opioid crisis. I also have some interest in uh, going back into methamphetamine research uh, at some point, but I'm still probably a couple of years away from that. I'm still new as a, as a professor here. Yeah, I think it's really great that there are these regulations in place, but it's also good that you mentioned that as well. Like I think I do think it's important to recognize sort of the um, the safety behind experimentation on animals. But one more question um, before we wrap things up: What made you decide to become a professor in psychology out of all the different possible fields that you could choose from? Honestly, my path for that was both completely straightforward and at the same time went way sideways. Uh, when I was in high school, I didn't do very well in my science classes and but and I didn't do very well in my social studies classes, but those were the ones that I enjoyed the most. And I always had an interest in addiction and I'm not entirely sure where that where that came from, but it was always something that just fascinated me like why why do we both as individuals and as a society just really want to change our brain states like why do we want to alter our mental status and why do some people do it just casually and other people need to do it constantly at great personal and professional risk so early on in my undergraduate uh, years i was interested in going into clinical psychology uh, with a focus on addiction counseling. Uh, but then my university forced me to take a biopsych course that I was very angry that I had to take as a, as a requirement, but it turned, it was completely focused on the brain and what different brain areas did. And it was like a revelation that 
everything that we are and everything that we do comes from the brain and, and it's all in there and it's just trying to pull out the pieces and figure out the connections and how it all works and so i completely shifted focus halfway through my undergraduate years i i took a class where we had to read primary literature so the journal articles that scientists write that until that course i didn't know existed and that was my second revelation that the science is actually being done by real people in real labs and they're writing about it and you can call them or email them and so i volunteered to join a lab and um, ended up uh, well chased the professor down the hall for a couple of weeks he called me jessica for a little while we're still <laughs> friends so this is kind of funny for us now uh, but he let me into his lab and he let me do some work and uh, I ended up shifting completely away from the idea of, of uh, clinical psychology or counseling and wanted to go into basic addiction research. And so that's been my path ever since. Mm -hmm. Well, that's definitely an interesting story, but it's been 30 minutes already. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, one last thing before we end things off. If our listeners want to connect with you online, um, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, my I have a, a personal and a lab Twitter account. So my account is at J-E-N-N-E-M-U-R-R-A-Y. And my laboratory's account is at M-U-R-R-A-Y. A-I-M-L-A-B, so Murray AIM Lab. We are the Addiction Interoception and Motivation Lab at the University of Guelph. Okay, awesome. Well, like I said, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. Um, I learned a lot about substance addiction and just psychology as a whole, so it's been a really exciting conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me.